because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, once again, I have a guest that needs no real introduction, so we're going to jump in. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, it's great to be here, Alex. So Bjorn, we had you on maybe a year ago to talk about your book, False Alarm. So tell us how that's been going. I've been seeing it a lot. I mean, I'm sort of skewed because I'm in this space, but it seems like it's been getting a lot of attention. You've had this great series in the Wall Street Journal over the past five or six weeks. So how has the reception been? So yeah, I, it's been good. Look, I, again, I'd love for everyone to read this. And I think really, in some sense, the 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 trouble with much of the conversation that you and I will be having uh, in the next 45 minutes and that I know you're trying on, on Twitter and Facebook and that I'm trying to get out there is that it doesn't get into much of the mainstream. Uh, you know, so one of one of the op-eds I did for the Wall Street Journal, I was actually, I've, I've just finished it today. It was 11 weeks long, which I thought was a little surprising. Uh, and uh, what do you and, mean, eleven and, weeks long? So You're it serious? was eleven. It was eleven uh, uh, abeds. And uh, oh yeah, in yeah, Wall oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That was amazing that they did yeah. that. And 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 one of one of the points I I did was, uh, and and you've also made this point before. How many people die from climate related disasters? And the answer is a hundred years, a lot. You know, about half a million people. And this year, the year where we probably heard the most about all of these uh, deaths is if you total all of it, you know, obviously we've heard about the uh, uh, heat dome and we heard about the German, Belgium people and, and maybe uh, floods and maybe something in China. We didn't hear about the more than thousand people that died in India and many, many other catastrophes. If you add all of them up, it's 7,000 compared to half a million a uh, hundred years ago. What that tells you is, and, and again, I don't need to tell you this, but what it shows is really adaptation and prosperity and resilient vastly outweigh whatever climate throws at us. That is an important piece of information to get out. And, and while I'm happy that a lot of people have both read and commented on my book, I think this ought to be much, much more widely read. That's that's one of the reasons why I talked to uh, uh, to Wall Street Journal about shouldn't we do this? And so you know, hopefully it's gotten out to more people. But but you know, I I, I don't think before we've actually gotten this case in front of a lot of the young people who are desperately scared about climate change. Uh, I don't think I've done my job well, but also I don't think the rest of the media has actually done their job. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to gauge these things because it looks like you're increasing a lot in your influence. I definitely feel that way about myself, Schellenberger and others. But of course, there's just this global tidal wave uh, for climate catastrophism, for these rapid energy elimination uh, policies. What have you found to be most effective in terms of what resonates most with people over the last year? Because, you know, you do a lot on social media. I think a lot of it has quite a bit of impact. Uh, so it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on, on what makes the most impact. So I think really it, it's about, and, and again, it's because I'm a data guy. It's about getting you this one graph that tells you something that's radically different from the standard story you hear. So you constantly hear about how people are dying from climate change, but then when you see this graph that dramatically goes the other way, it sort of challenges you in, in a way that I think is very healthy and gets a lot of people, uh, and especially a lot of people who would sort of tend to say, but of course, more and more people are dying. Wait a minute, is that really true? Uh, what, what is that? And then of course, 
all these other uh, 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 justifications come up and people will say, sure, but that's just because we're richer and we're smarter and we're better, but now it's going to get much worse. But it, at least it makes it a lot harder to make that argument. I think some of the other things that I've, I've pointed out, uh, if you remember the, uh, uh, the uh, fire catastrophe in Australia in 2019-20, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have the satellite data. And it shows that it was one of the lowest burns in, in percent of area of Australia that we've ever seen. So you know, in the last century, 10 to 12% of Australia used to burn every year. And this century, probably six to 8%. The 2019 to 20 was less than 4%. Now, admittedly, it burnt a lot of forest, which was very close to where a lot of people live, also very close to where a lot of media outlets are. So it really had a significant impact and, and a significant negative impact on a lot of people's lives. But of course, if you want to claim that this is because of global warming, not just bad forest management, you actually have to say, well, then it should affect all of Australia. You can't just pick a little bit of where precisely fit your fit your uh, your argument and there it's almost entirely counter to what the global warming argument would be telling us that sort of evidence again goes totally against so you see you know australia is just uh, declining and declining in level of of uh, burnt area and people are like how is it i'm so amazed and so worried about this point it doesn't mean global warming is not real. It doesn't mean that there isn't a problem, but it means when you put it in context, this is not the end of the world as you think. Uh, I, for, for the Wall Street Journal, I did a similar one for global uh, burning. And again, people think we burn more and more. And the answer is again, no, we actually burn less and less. Why? Because humans don't like fire, so they make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, so uh, we, we have reconstructed data for last century, which indicates we probably saw about 4.2% of the world burning every year in, in around 1900. Uh, and when the satellite era started, it was about 3.5%. Uh, now it's down to 2.5%. So we've actually seen a dramatic decline just in these last uh, uh, 20, 25 years. And it's also likely when you include humans that you will see even less burn towards the end of the century. Now, if you do strong climate policy, it'll burn even less, less. And that's important. Again, what it tells you is climate change is basically something that slightly slows our progress rather than something that eradicates our entire progress and makes the world a terrible place. It slightly slows our progress. That's a very different setup. It doesn't mean you need to get scared witless, but it means it's a problem. Like many others, we should fix it, but smartly. Yeah, and we'll talk about it because it's if it's a side effect of the energy that fuels your progress, then you really have to think about that in context. It's not just an isolated variable. You can say, oh, let's remove the negative climate impact and then everything else uh, holds constant. Yes. But I want to make one observation of what I like about your social media. I was, I was teaching a group of people how I approach Twitter and, and I used one of your things as an example. I think one thing you do really well is show primary sources visually. And I think that gives a lot of credibility because you can say, okay, climate-related disaster deaths have gone down 98%, and graphing it is great, showing the source, you know, referencing the International Disaster Database. But often what you'll also do is with papers, you know, you'll show the actual paper and the highlight in the paper. Like there was the one about Tuvalu the other day. Maybe you could talk about uh, that one. 
Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm really happy you like that because that's, you know, that, that's what I try to do. I try to say, I'm not just a guy with an opinion. I happen to have read a lot of these papers and here is the source and you can go and check it yourself. Uh, so I don't know if you saw uh, Tuvalu's uh, uh, foreign minister. Uh, yeah, he I did, was, he uh, did giving... the, the Guterres thing of standing underwater. Like, yes, you know, yes. He, he gave a recorded uh, uh, statement to, uh, to uh, the uh, UN, uh, the COP26. Uh, and so he waited out in the water and they put the whole background there and it was very well done. They had a drone as well. So you could see the whole thing. I, I totally get this was very, very well uh, you know, media sculpted. But of course, it's entirely fake because we also have the research study that have looked not just at Tuvalu. And let's talk about that for a second, but also at Tuvalu and said, all right, so how big is Tuvalu now? How big was it in the past? You would imagine as sea levels rise that you would see less and less of Tuvalu. It will actually be losing area. No, it's actually increased that area. Why is that? Because there are two things going on at the same time. As sea levels rise, it becomes harder for Tuvalu and other uh, uh, island atolls around the Pacific. But at the same time, remember, all of these islands are basically built by rubble from coral reefs. I mean, that's the only reason why they're out there in the first place. And so what happens is, as, as dead coral uh, gets blown in by storms, you get accretion on these islands. And so what you can see is these islands naturally tend to increase from the accretion, but then they tend to decrease because of the sea level rise. Right now, accretion is winning and winning by quite a big margin, which is why this new nature paper tells us Tuvalu will at least be a site of habitation for another hundred, for, for, for a century. Uh, as how they say, for, for, for 100 years. And this is not just true for Tuvalu, it's true for Micronesia, for the Maldives, for all of these atolls have seen increases. Remember, uh, the Maldives, because they're incredibly rich, uh, they've, they've actually built a new airport and many other things. Uh, so, so it's not like, so some of this is naturally, sorry, some of this is reclaimed area. Uh, which is a little bit what the Dutch and New, New York does. And, and we know how to do that, but that's of course not the natural part of it. But even the ones that haven't done this have seen increases, not as spectacular as the, what, 30% that the Maldives have increased. There are also a huge amount of uh, people there. So it makes sense to do this, but it shows you the story we constantly hear, namely that these islands are going to be gone in a flick of a second, is simply bad media. And somebody should be telling you this. And so I put up the picture of this guy speaking out in the ocean and then the scientific paper saying it's increased. Which one should we believe? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very, very effective. You did it. You had a really good uh, people should look up. I think I posted about this your your exchange with Stiglitz. I thought on LinkedIn was was very effective. Uh, let's talk before we get into COP26. Let's talk about what your experiences have been with with Facebook because they've been taking you on. And I always think like you got to be careful about. There's kind of a group of us who you probably shouldn't take on unless you really know what you're doing because we're pretty aggressive and and tend to believe that we're right and have a lot of facts. And you're one of those people. So what's happened with Facebook and how is it going now? So so Facebook has, and I think you know. There, there's a real problem with fake information on social media. So it makes sense to say that Facebook and other social media should think about, you know, how do we deal with this? So people don't think, uh, you know, I should drink bleach for, uh, to, to tackle COVID or something else. That, that mm -hmm. makes sense to say we should, we should sort of get rid of outright false statements. But of course, 
there's a very, very big part of this conversation that very easily lends itself to someone saying, that's fake because I don't like it and we should get rid of it. There's a lot of people out there who'd love to cancel you, cancel me, cancel a lot of people, uh, and honestly, maybe say anything that's not scary and climate change must be false. I, I think to a lot of people, this this sounds like a true statement. Uh, and, and, and so uh, uh, one of these fact checkers have actually uh, gotten hold of some of the stuff that I've done, but they now have the power vested from Facebook to basically censure your uh, your uh, your research. So uh, the Lancet did uh, a number of studies, and Lancet is mostly a very very worried uh, climate worried journal. Uh, but they they also have you know a, a lot of good papers, and uh, one of these papers actually looked at not only as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat and hence more heat waves and hence more heat deaths. But they also looked at the other part, which a lot of papers forget, namely as temperatures rise, you get less cold and less cold waves and hence fewer people dying from cold. This matters because there's many, many more people dying from cold than from heat. It actually turns out, and this is the first paper to do this, trying to model this for the entire world. And remember, again, we don't have data for every place in the world. So this is a model estimate, but you know, it's, we have reasonably good estimate. But this is the first one that actually tries to do this for the whole world. They find that about 500,000 people die from heat every year and 4.5 million people, so nine times more, die from cold. Even in Sub-Saharan Africa, Cold is a much bigger killer than heat. And you sort of, it blows your mind, but what really happens here is, you can see when you, when you look at where's the minimum mortality. So if you, if you take temperature out this way, what happens is this is the minimum temperature. This is, sorry, the minimum mortality temperature. So when it's colder, you die more, and then you end here. And then when it gets hotter, you also die more. But, this is fairly high up. That's because we're actually a tropical species. We come from Africa. And so in some sense, it's yes, if it gets very, very hot, we die more. But most of the time we die somewhat more from cold because we're actually slightly uncomfortable uh, and, and too cold and living in Scandinavia. I know what that feels like, right? So, I mean, I'm actually it's not sitting just, on It's a, not just Scandinavia is the issue, right? I know, in I Africa, know. Africa, it if, happens. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and that, of course, happens. So I, I went uh, to, to uh, uh, Egypt uh, in, the, in the winter. That bad, bad idea. Uh, but you know, none of the houses are insulated. So it's just freaking cold. Uh, at night, you know, you need to lie with everything on top of you and there's not good heating and you, you, you bring some bottles with hot water and then eventually during the night it gets really cold, all that stuff. And people live through that. And especially, of course, if you're poor. So what they found was over the last 20 years, temperatures have risen about half a degree centigrade. So about one degree Fahrenheit. And at that time, you've seen increasing levels of heat deaths but decreasing levels of cold death. Cold deaths have dropped by more than twice as much as heat deaths have increased. If you make this into absolute numbers, it turns out that you've probably seen about 116,000 more heat deaths, but 283,000 fewer cold deaths. In total, this has saved 166,000 deaths every year from occurring from combined heat and cold deaths. Now, I made this into a Facebook post because I thought that is interesting. There's a new Lancet study that shows you that temperatures have increased heat deaths, decreased cold deaths. All in all, we're now actually seeing 
166,000 people surviving every year because temperatures have increased. That's amazing. They basically said, you can't say that because, and here is the kicker. So we've collected a large number of people who say, we don't like you. So uh, their first witness is actually a pediatrician from, uh, from Boston Children's Hospital, who also has a side gig at uh, Harvard University uh, for a health group. Uh, but he is a pediatrician and his argument is Bjorn gets it all wrong. Not here is where the data goes wrong. Here's what he's doing because they can't. And then you know, I basically gave them a, a, a good run for their money and showed how it was incredibly wrong. And so they went and asked the second author of the study to write something critical. And it was really hard for him because you know, obviously I'm actually doing exactly what their study did. He did write some stuff and, and tried to you know, say, well, it's not as easy as all that and stuff. But he'd already said this to the press. There's a quote on the, in the press releases from this saying, because of increasing temperatures, we get more heat deaths, we get much less cold deaths. And so overall, you see a net decrease in cold and heat deaths. It's not harder than that, but it's still blocked on Facebook. And that tells you something, because when you leave people with the opportunity of deleting inconvenient material, a lot of people are going to pick that. But it doesn't mean we're well-informed. It actually means we're a lot less well-informed. Yeah, I saw. I remember I saw you had that really good graphic at the beginning, and then you posted a refutation of Facebook, but then they suppressed that refutation. Yes. Which... Funnily enough, I then I dared uh, Facebook on a on a on a series of posts that became more and more boring, and they kept you know uh, 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 censoring it until I just posted the quote of the author in the uh, in the press saying exactly the same thing, and then they sort of let it pass. It was very clear they were sort of like, where do we, where do, we do this? This is inc inconvenient, right? But the, but the truth, of course, is it is a very different case to say, don't drink bleach to tackle COVID, which is you know, obviously a bad advice. Uh, and then to the other point of, of saying, so is, are there more or fewer cold and heat deaths? First of all, I think it's, it's fairly obvious. The Lancet study actually says there's overall fewer uh, heat and cold deaths, and they say so in the paper, they say so in their press release, they say so in their posters, all that kind of stuff, and of course in the article. But to say, no, we're actually going to censure you just simply because we don't like to hear that kind of argument is a terrible and civilizationally useless way of having a good conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you're, you're fighting against it, because I think the, the more people see these conflicts and they see that the fact checkers are wrong, Yep. Uh, the more powerful it is. I, I had one with Twitter, which was pretty cool because they had an article saying it's going to warm, you know, they're talking about 1.5 and 2 degrees. And they said, oh, it's going to warm that from now until 2040. And they didn't realize that the warming is from the 1900s or from the 1800s. Yep, yep. And I called them on that and they actually corrected it in oh, their cool. news story. But, you know, millions of people had seen that. And it just shows you how little they know. If they, they thought 1.5 degrees means from now. Versus yes. from pre-industrial yeah. times, and that's yeah. a common fallacy. It just shows these people like they, they should not be—they're not should not be in the business of making these precise scientific uh, corrections. 
Um, so you mentioned, you know, you're you're growing an in influence. I think a lot of people who think this way are growing an in influence, but the mainstream is still way against us. And I think there's no greater illustration of this than than COP26. So what I thought I would do is I wanted to share some observations that I've had. And these observations, if people look at the draft report, I'm sure the final report would be exactly the same thing. Uh, but I'll give you some observations that apply to all of this. And maybe if you could just take about two minutes for each uh, to talk about them, assuming you agree. But so I have seven of them, and, and all of these are in the form of no acknowledgement of some crucial piece of context. So it's kind of like the heat-related deaths. It's like, this is crucial context for thinking about this. And so one thing I've seen, which is almost comical, but it's really tragic, is no acknowledgement of the cost of climate policy. So for example, in the draft report, there's not even the word cost. And I look through the whole thing, and there's no mention of, oh, this could be bad. And so their view is, oh, two degrees is worse than one point five degrees, and therefore obviously you should go to 1.5. I don't know why you shouldn't go to 1.1 then, right, by that that logic. So you could talk about the importance of factoring in the cost of these yeah. policies. Oh, God, yes. And it's a very good example of, of uh, fundamentally what climate economics has tried to bring to the table of understanding climate is that there is a cost of climate, which we constantly hear from climate uh, 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 information and climate campaigners, look, as temperatures rise, there are going to be more problems than benefits. That's that's true. That's why it's a problem. And that's why we should talk about it as such. But trying to fix it with climate policy obviously also has a cost. And not talking about that makes it ex exactly as you say, then you just think, well, well, we should just have the lowest possible temperature. Of course, if there's no cost to this. But when, and what all politicians realize, of course, is there is huge costs to actually changing the basic growth engine of your society. You know, just ripping out the stuff that has brought us uh, uh, prosperity for 200 years is a little dangerous and will probably have significant costs. Uh, one, one of the points I've tried to make here uh, is uh, uh, the last couple of months is uh, Nature published a new study uh, on, on, and their main point was actually not to look at what's the cost of US going net zero, but inadvertently they ended up showing what the model showed was almost the cost of going net zero, namely uh, reducing emissions by 20, uh, sorry, by 95% by 2050. Uh, and the answer is if you do everything right and everything smart, the cost is going to be 11.9% of US GDP in 2050. And that's every year. So every year in 2050 and from there on, on out, an average American will have to pay $11,300 every year, every person. You know, family of four, 48,000, right? That's a huge amount of money. Sorry, that's 45,000. I can't multiply. Uh, but, but, They're going to quote uh, you on that. I yes, I know. I know. That's, that's I why I figure I better, I better get that right. Uh, so, so fundamentally, you're never going to get people to do that. And of course, politicians know this, but not having this conversation and certainly not discussing it at the UN uh, climate conference makes it seem like, oh, there's only benefits of cutting carbon emissions. No, there are benefits and costs. And we need to weigh the two, just like we do with every other policy. Yeah, and, and then I'll just fold in two additional observations that are related. I noticed in the conference and certainly in the draft document, there's no mention of the value of fossil fuels in particular, you know, which provide 80% of the world's energy. And there's not even a mention of the value of energy. So the whole draft report doesn't even have the word energy 
uh, in it. So this just, how could you possibly think about this rationally if you're saying, this is a conference about the side effect basically of using fossil fuels, which is our main form of energy, yet there's no mention of the value of that or the value of energy. Yeah, and and you, you get why, of course, uh, because that would be a distraction from the political push to try to get you to just simply cut. Uh, you only mention benefits, you don't mention disbenefits, but we know that that's the way to make sure that you engineer essentially a social discord with actually getting this done, which of course is why we've had these climate conferences for almost 30 years. You promise stuff that sounds good, but then when you actually put it into policy, it turns out that this is going to you know, raise energy costs for a lot of people and they're going to say no. And then you vote in people who are going to be against this. I mean, should it's really shocking. I, I still get shocked when I read these these kinds of draft agreements and when I watch the conduct. And it's just you're you're thinking about taking an action and you're not thinking about the cost of the action, right? You're not thinking about the obvious, the value of the fossil fuels and the energy. Like it's such the opposite of science. And yet the the public perception of this is this is just like a meeting of Galileos, basically. Oh, it's just like this totally science. And you said, oh, well, you shouldn't be surprised or something like, but fundamentally we should be surprised that a quote scientific process is omitting these fundamentals of thinking rationally about any policy. Yeah. And and look, it, I, in, in some ways, this is because we've become so fetishized with the idea of science. Look, science is just a way to look at different issues smartly so we get better information. And scientists are basically telling us, look, there's this thing out there that's called global warming. The more CO2 you put into the atmosphere, all other things equal, the higher the temperature. That's that's all they have said. The rest of it, we've kind of made up. So you know, temperature is going to be bad. That's much more a, a, a social economic argument. Yes, it probably will be bad. And that's what uh, climate economists have been figuring out for 30 years. But it's also going to be bad to cut carbon emissions. And so in some sense, climate economists have been saying this for a very long time, but they're not at the table. It's just the scientists. And so, you know, it's a little bit, I've made this metaphor before, but I think it's important to point out, if you look at one of the biggest totally human-made death causes in the world. It's car crashes. So we know cars kill more than one sort of 1.2 million people each year. It's all human cost. And we know the solution. Just you know, set the speed limit at three miles an hour and nobody dies. You know. But there's a reason why we don't do that because that would also have huge costs. And people, of course, in, in, intuitively understand, oh, wait, I actually don't want to live in a society where I only go three miles an hour because that means you know, basically nothing works anymore. So the fundamental point is we make these trade-offs all the time where we say, you know, we can have a sensible conversation should speed limits be 55 miles an hour or 85 miles an hour. Unless you're German, nobody's suggesting you can just go as fast as you possibly want, right? So, so we're having a sensible conversation between 55 and 85, but nobody's saying infinity and nobody is saying three miles an hour. But in some way, the climate debate has become, let's say three miles an hour. No, 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 minus three miles. You know, it's it's just one of these, who can say the lowest number? And of course there's no limit to that, but, but it gets silly pretty fast. Yes, yeah, so this goes to my view that I think most of the climate catastrophe position is, is philosophical and, and moral. Cause you look at the, the position of net zero basically means let's optimize for eliminating our CO2 emissions 
at any cost. And if you look at the, the history of this, it mostly comes from activists like Bill McKibben who just said, yeah, we shouldn't be using this. Let's get rid of this. Or the 1.5 degree number, the two, like saying we need to do this. They're really, they really view it, I think, the leaders at least view it, they just view it as intrinsically wrong that we're impacting the climate. And it's like a commandment, thou shalt not impact climate. And the idea is stop at all costs versus what you're looking hmm. at is, okay, what's going to be best for humanity uh, overall? And this is just one variable. Yeah. And, and again, I think this, this is a much greater philosophical issue because if you buy into that, we shouldn't be affecting uh, the world's climate. Surely we shouldn't be affecting the world's biodiversity by having all these great fields where we grow food that actually you know, makes people not starve. Uh, and and you know, it very easily becomes this, well, maybe humans shouldn't be here on the planet. And look, that's a fine academic argument, a fine philosophical argument, but I'm always very surprised by the fact that most people seem to say, you know what? There's too many of you, but just enough of me. Uh, and 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 you know, well, okay. If you let your own kids go first, maybe we can you know be more sensible about saying, all right, you're serious about this. Uh, you know, clearly, this is not how most people think, and I think it's fine that you know. I'm I'm not sure. I I, I don't quite understand what exactly motivates Bill Kip, McKibben, uh, but 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 you know, I'm, I'm sure some of these people uh, uh, strongly believe that this is. This is about you know, you know, leaving the earth with as little footprint as possible. Whereas I would su suggest, no, it's about making sure that people are well off. And because people are well off, we actually care about the environment. We care about uh, uh, other uh, uh, beings on this planet. And we will make sure to have better conditions for those animals and plants but only once we're not starving ourselves, not dying from easily curable infectious diseases and all these other problems, right? So it's it's about a, a priority order here. Let's make sure humans are well off so we can actually care for everyone else. So the one, another observation about COP26 in this, this draft document is, so there, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, there are, you know, this has effects on the climate, they're more negative than positive. And that would be an interesting thing to drill into, but you're acknowledging there, there can be negative and positive. And you mentioned positive with the, the decline in cold-related deaths. What's interesting is there's no mention at this conference of any positives of rising CO2, even though it's a warming gas and a fertilizing gas. And obviously a lot of people are too cold and die of cold. And in general, plant growth is a good thing because it, it increases the amount of raw biomass. So, I mean, isn't this a problem that they're that they're not even looking? So it's one thing to even say, you can say the negatives are 10 times the positives, but it doesn't have much credibility if there are clear positives and you ignore yep. them. Yes. And, and again, it simply just misinforms us. And of course, it also tells you that this is much more a political question. Uh, you know, where, where you can only mention the positives of, of going net zero and you can only mention the negatives of, of current fossil fuel use. And, and you know that's a that's a Disney version of the world. That's a sort of an adventure tale uh, where where you where you just caricature everything. And it's very unlikely it's going to make for good decision making if you don't know these things. As you point out, we have more uh, uh, global green biomass. Uh, we have much more green. On, on this planet because of CO2. This is not controversial, although a lot of people haven't heard it. It's not controversial because it's in the climate models. They need that obviously to run the climate model as precisely as possible. So what we've seen is uh, since 1500 or something, we have dramatically cut a lot of forests. That's basically Europe and then later on uh, the US cutting down a lot of forests in order to you know get rich. Uh, and now of course we're saying that the developing countries shouldn't do the same. But what's happened is around 1950 or the, a little later on, we've seen an 
increase in global biomass, and that's likely to continue for the rest of the century. It's even possible, although not that plausible, that we'll get back up to about 1500 level. Now, you can still argue, oh, but it's the wrong kind of green. And, and that's reasonable. You know, I'd rather have lobsters than uh, algae, for instance. Uh, and, and, you know, that makes sense. Algae, not very valuable and possibly annoying. Uh, lobsters, especially if you can catch them, really nice and delicious. So, you know, it makes sense to have that conversation. And also, I just like the idea of having the lobsters out there. But nobody, and I really think nobody can say, I'd rather live on a planet with less green stuff than with more green stuff. That's it's a positive. And it's like that with many other things. We know that, you know, heating costs will go down, cooling costs will go up. But for most people, that's actually a net positive. There are many of these positives. Again, the negatives outweigh the positives, which is why it's a problem. I don't think it's 10 to 1. But the main fact is, if you don't tell people about the, uh, the positives at all, you're likely to have a very biased view. And of course, when there's this almost social injunction, you can't say anything positive about global warming or you'll get booted off Facebook. You are making this up for a very, very bad uh, and ill-informed conversation. One thing I saw in the draft report, which is very consistent with what we see, is that there was some just general comment about we know that warming leads to bad extreme weather, bad everything. And it has this element of everything that humans cause is bad. And to me, as soon as I, like, as soon as I realized that a lot, a long time ago, I just thought this is a totally religious view because there's no way you can have a super complex system and we have an impact and everything is bad, right? It's just it, like yep. logically impossible. So yeah, it's just that, that's the fairy tale. We, get worse. Yeah. It's the fairy tale we talked about before, but also it's, basically an outcome of most people just not caring or bothering to read the UN Climate Panel Report. <laughs> they, they've spent an enormous amount of time trying to synthesize all the studies that we know. And what is amazing is we actually only know really well a few outcomes of global warming. So with temperature rises from CO2 emissions, we will see more heat, as we talked about before. We'll see less cold, you rarely hear that, but these are the two strongest points from the knowledge. And then we have probably more extreme rain or heavy rain. Those are the three things we really know. Then we have some understanding that probably we will see fewer but stronger hurricanes, for instance. And remember, fewer is good. Stronger is bad. Stronger is worse than fewer. So that's why you actually end up with hurricanes being worse. But we can't show that yet. So we actually only estimate this will happen in, the, in somewhere between 20 and 60 years out in the future, we'll actually be able to document that. And so there's something amusing, comically amusing about you know uh, every weather forecaster and every commenter and every TV show looks at a hurricane and say, see, global warming. <laughs> no, the, you know, the NASA can't tell. So it's unlikely you can. Again, this does not mean that it is not what we project will happen in the long run, namely that you will actually see fewer of those, not more as I think you think, but you'll see stronger, which is somewhat al aligned with your view. But it's just, you know, people just randomly rattle off, uh, you know, we'll see more droughts, more storms, more wildfire, more everything. And, and, you know, most of the data is just not there. And most of the data actually indicates the opposite as we talked about with fire, not because global warming will not all by itself make fire more likely, but because all the other factors will make it less likely, just like sea level rise would make it more likely you and I 
would be drowning. But the fact that we're humans and surrounded by lots of other humans that actually actively work against stuff being flooded is the reason why we don't drown. And actually, fun little fact, uh, a new nature paper shows that overall the planet has gotten, land area on the planet has gotten bigger, not smaller as uh, sea levels have risen. Because yes, some places get inundated, especially uh, places nobody live and nobody really cares about, like uh, up in the far wilderness of Alaska. But most places like New York increase as sea levels rise because land area in New York is incredibly valuable. Okay, well, you mentioned sea level rise. And so this, this is maybe the thing that's most non-Bjorn Lomborg, what I'm going to say next about this draft and about the conference is there's no acknowledgement of the value of adaptation. And as an example, the fact that we're far safer than ever from climate-related disaster deaths. Now, if somebody reads the report, unlike energy, the word adaptation is mentioned many times, but it's all in the context of we need to give money to certain countries for, quote, adaptation. But there's no mention of the fact that adaptation is, you know, I, I would call it mastery in many ways, but has, has given us unprecedented safety from climate and also is this incredible neutralizing factor for any negative climate outcomes in the future. So how, how can they possibly do that? Yeah. And, and again, I mean, part of it is obviously because, you know, COP26 and all the other COPs are mostly about assigning blame and getting people to spend money in different places they rather not. Uh, so it's more of a political conversation. And obviously, a large part of this is increasingly becoming most developing countries. Honestly, they have much bigger priorities, like pulling their populations out of poverty. But they see that this is incredibly important for rich countries. And so, hey, maybe we can get a buck or two out of it, or you know, maybe a couple hundred billion bucks uh, out of it. And that's why, you know, uh, in 2009, they were promised $100 billion a year. And we haven't quite gotten there. And, and honestly, it's more like we're giving away somewhere between two and $20 uh, billion. Uh, but you know, if I was a developing country, obviously, I'd be asking for, hey, could we have, you know, $1.3 trillion per year, as, as some of these developing countries are, are, are suggesting? I totally understand that, you know, getting more money is better than not getting more money if you're on the receiving end of that money. But partly that's obviously gonna make it even harder to actually get agreement. And also it doesn't underline the main point as you, as you exactly say, the main part about climate change is we've had lots of climate change in our history, not necessarily global climate change, but everyone have had to deal with the fact that it's gotten drier or wetter, that it's gotten you know, more muddy and more uh, uh, windy or, or even been flooded. And we have dealt with much of this and we know how to do it. And the Dutch are a great example, but you know, even the old Babylonians could you know, build dikes and know how to avoid uh, a sea level rise. We know how to do this and we do it very, very cheaply. And that's of course why, yes, you might see you know, Hurricane Katrina, and you need a wake-up call where you have bad, bad infrastructure and you have uh, let Corps of uh, Army Engineers uh, you know, design levees badly and, and inefficiently. But then people come in and fix it. And that's why we saw Hurricane Ida. And you know, very few people uh, suffered, <clears throat> suffered in, uh, uh, with Hurricane Ida. Essentially the same as Katrina, but with much better adaptation. That's the point that we need to recognize that this is going to happen and is happening everywhere on the planet. Uh, just fun fact again, uh, when this is obviously not sea level rise, but it makes it much clearer when when you had the the earthquake 
that everyone knows as Fukushima, but that's actually the you know the nuclear power plant. But when you had that big uh, earthquake that caused the tsunami in Japan in 2011, a lot of uh, you know coastal villages were wiped out. And one of the things you know a country that knows how to deal with these things can say to itself, uh, especially after such a catastrophe, is we won't let that happen again. What they've basically done is they've erected big walls. They already have big walls, but they now have much, much bigger walls. But many of these communities, they've just taken them and lifted them up, uh, you know, 10 to 20 feet. All these communities, big cities, and not, not you know, 100,000 uh, uh, people cities, but, you know, many thousands of people, they've just taken all the houses and lifted up. And, and you, we're thinking, wow, you can do that. Uh, most people who haven't heard that story should go and uh, look up the, the great lifting of Chicago. So Chicago back in the 1850s was a terrible mush and, you know, they couldn't have uh, 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 drainage and, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, sewage and all that stuff. So they just decided to lift the whole of, of Chicago about three to four feet. And they in 18, did this while- in 1850s. In 1850. And, you know, there's, uh, unfortunately, there are no pictures, of course, but there are these, you know, engravings and stuff. So they took whole blocks and they lifted them while people were working inside, while people were still going in and shopping and stuff. They had like, you know, 90,000 jack, uh, jacks and everybody doing it at the same time. I'm not doing like this, you know, everybody at the same level, uh, <laughs> same time and just lifting the whole block and then, you know, putting soil in under it. Much of Chicago was lifted three to four feet. It's on Wikipedia and, and lots of other and, stories. You know, we're at one foot a century sea level rise right now. And so, oh, yeah. it could get to two feet or three feet and it's supposedly the end of the world. That's yeah, and, and of course we know how to deal with this. And again, you just need to know this information. It's not rocket science and it's not expensive. Again, it doesn't mean we'd be better off if there was no sea level rise, but this is not like it's going to eradicate us. It's an inconvenience at best. So final observation, and this is in some ways the most crazy of all COP26 in this draft report, is there's no acknowledgement of how good the world is and that its prospects are improving. So I think that the view people get is the world has gotten pretty catastrophically bad and now it's going to get apocalyptic. And isn't it even true that the UN even acknowledges that the world is, if you look at the data, like improving and going to improve radically, even under a lot of these scenarios? Yeah. Uh, so. The UN is a big organization. Yeah, they yeah, obviously the IPCC yes. reports that address this. When you talk about like so the IPCC law. is also a huge, you know, huge report with you know literally thousands of researchers. I think the the fundamental point is if you actually look at what goes in the climate model. Remember, the climate models have to predict 100 years out. They have to predict how much CO2 we emit, how much agriculture we have. All, all that kind of stuff. It, they also have to predict how long will we live because that affects how many people are going to be on the planet and stuff. And all of those scenarios show that we're going to be much richer. We're going to live much longer. We'll also have better education. We'll have much more energy. All of the main things that really matter for human quality are improving dramatically over the century. Just to give you one sense, which I think sort of incorporates much of this, the UN in its last report in 2018 on, on what the negative impact uh, of total uh, global warming estimate that the total net negative impact, if we did nothing about climate by the end of the century, would be 2.6% of global GDP reduction. So, you know, each one of us would feel like we would be 2.6% less well off. That's definitely a problem. 
But remember, the same assumptions also assume that each person will be 450% as rich as he or she is today. We'll be 450% as rich as we are today, but then 2.6% less well-off. If you do the math, that's about 434% as well-off as we are today. So we'll, instead of being this well-off, we'll be this well-off. And you're excused for not being able to see the difference here, right? But there's a tiny bit of difference. We'll be much better off, but slightly less, much better off. And again, it goes back to the point that we made before. Climate change is not something that makes the world miserable and terrible and existential. It's something that slightly impedes our progress. Yes, that's a problem, not the end of the world. Yeah, and again, it's out of context, you can say it impedes, but if it's, I mean, it's something like the analogy I'd use, okay, a vaccine makes life a lot better. And some vaccines, let's leave aside the current discussion, but, you know, have some significant side effects. But in general, life is, so you could say, oh, well, if it wasn't for vaccine side effects, that it would be better, but you don't get the vaccine. The vaccine side effects come with the vaccine. So I think the no. CO2 emissions and, come with the energy. So overall, and, and, and I like that. Better. I like that metaphor. And you can also just do it for you know, medications, which I think a lot of people sort of recognize medications, you know, generally solve something that you really would like to get solved. And then they probably have some side effects. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking for even milder medicines that would you know heal you yeah. more but you know, hurt you less. That's that's fine, but but you're absolutely right. So I, I think it's important to sort of recognize that there is a problem. You know, this medication is not totally side effect free and it would be nice if we could make it less side effect free, but exactly as you say, let's make sure we don't just, you know, dump the whole medication or the vaccines uh, in order to fix this small side effect problem and then end up in a much worse place where we, you know, for instance, can't feed uh, the world's population. Again, fun fact, uh, half of all the protein that you get in the world comes from fertilizer that's, that's made with fossil fuels. Now, again, we could probably solve some of that and possibly even all of it in the long run. Certainly if you're rich, you can. But you know, it's interesting to say, I'm not sure there's sort of half of the world's population that would volunteer to not be the ones to get fed. So, so you know, you, we need to be honest about this. It's not just simple to say, oh, let's go net zero and then we'll figure out how we get food to all of you guys. Yeah, again, as I was saying, oh, let's go net zero vaccine side effects, medical side effects, and we have no idea how to get there and everything we know. Yep. So it's just, it's so, and really I think what's going on in a final comment philosophically is if you, I really think the leaders of this, the, I mean, the McKibbins and like those, I think they morally object to the benefits of energy, not just the side effects. You see a lot of hostility toward development, industrialization in general. And you see there's always a, a way to, there's always a reason to oppose every form of energy. So for example, fossil fuels get opposed, but nuclear gets opposed, large scale hydro gets opposed, and even solar and wind get opposed. And the common denominator is always, oh, it's too much impact on nature. So it's always hmm. that it's wrong for us to impact nature. And for me, the reason CO2 is such a big deal to people is not because of its magnitude on human life, but because it's just viewed as it's wrong for us to impact the climate. And I think the I've never seen somebody who doesn't have the view that it's wrong for us to impact nature. I've never seen them be a catastrophist. It's possible, yeah. but almost everyone has that moral view. And it has a religious quality of, oh, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to go to hell. So, yep. And they're much more likely to believe the idea that the earth is a delicate nurture and anything we do is going to cause it to collapse because that's consistent with the view that it's wrong 
for us to impact things. Yeah. That, that's a very interesting point. Uh, again, one of the ways that I see this conversation is there's no way I'm ever going to convince Bill McKibben and a lot of other people. But, you know, uh, Bill McKibben's and the people who would generally tend to say, uh, you know, we really only care about negative impacts on, 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 on the environment are a fairly small percentage oh, yeah, I agree. I agree, of, 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 of the population. So I'm much more trying to get the, you know, sort of the 90, 95% of the population who would say, sure, I'd like, you know, cleaner water and I'd like there to be more birds uh, and I'd like my kids not to die from infectious diseases. So, you know, let's find somewhere where we can get all three of those. Uh, and, and those are the people who are right now being told it's the end of the world so surely we should do anything that's necessary to avoid the end of the world. That makes sense. You know, if, you, if it really is the end of the world, right. you should throw everything in the kitchen sink at this. But if we can get them to understand, the UN tells you this is a problem, not the end of the world. And it is, uh, you know, a 2.6%, whether you call that minor or, you know, sort of, it's not big league uh, issue. Then let's get a sense of proportion on how we fix that. Let's not fix a 2.6% problem with, as I mentioned earlier on, the 11.9% GDP decline just for the US for part of the sol solution of this problem. That's that's just dumb. That's like cutting off your arm in order to cure a wrist ache or something. Uh, you know, let's do smart stuff, not the dumb stuff. And one reason I keep emphasizing the philosophical point is the way I want people to view you and to view me is not that we have some controversial alternative set of facts, but that we're looking at the full context of facts from a consistently pro-human perspective. And I think the more that gets realized, then it's, it's not like, oh, they're challenging climate science. It's no, we're integrating climate science in a different yep. way from a different kind of perspective. And I think then yep. it's pretty clear that, as you said, most people will prefer our perspective of, yeah, let's do what's best for human life, including having a wonderful world uh, to live in, but let's not make these massive sacrifices because we think it's wrong for us to impact the earth. I, I, lo I love that point. You, my, my only uh, quibble with it is that when you start saying, but the philosophical ground, I think you know, a lot of people's eyes just glaze over. Well, right? yeah, I'm I mean, more talking to you and to yes. this, this audience, but I, I do think people find those, those yeah. interesting, oh, uh, those kinds yeah. of points interesting. So Bjorn, really grateful for everything you're doing. Uh, let's just tell people where can, what should they read of yours? What should they consume so they can keep learning from you? So uh, I, I published a period uh, article last uh, last year, uh, which is freely available. So you should go and check that out. Uh, we can probably yeah. leave it in the in, oh, in, in the, the uh, okay yeah in the notes. Uh, and and uh, uh, they should certainly check out the uh, uh, some of my Twitter. I think you know that's a that's sort of yeah, an easy way to see. We need to get you to, to hundred thousand. You're almost at hundred thousand followers. I saw today. I, so I, I know we're going to have a celebration there. Uh, and and then uh, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of sort of nuggets. Uh, uh, you know, really just one graph nuggets. Uh, the Wall Street Journal is the same thing, but unfortunately that's behind a paywall. Uh, and then, of course, uh, go and, if you think this is interesting, you can read the first 25 pages of my uh, book. I'll uh, I'll get you the uh, the link so you can check that out. Yeah, and if you think buy, that's just interesting, just go buy the book, guys. Come well, on. and I mean, the and books then, very, I, I'm, I'm a big cheap. believer that you should first, you know, sort of see if this is what you want. Uh, uh, I hate buying, you know, one of those apps and then realizing it doesn't work for my phone. So I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of saying, take a, take a look for free. And then if you like it, uh, sure, buy, buy the book. I think you'll find 
and and this is just you you you're just coming out with a book, so you probably have a similar kind of experience. Uh, but I've written uh, a number of books, and I've just realized I've always had way too lenient editors. Uh, this time I had a really really harsh editor. She, you know, I would write sort of the best thing I could possibly do, and she would be like, "You know, Baron, that's not all bad." Mm. <laughs> and then, but rewrite. <laughs> and I, oh God, I rewrote so much. Uh, but you know, after you're, you're, it sucks and you're really, really annoyed for a very long time. Um, it's also the best book I've ever written. So False Alarm uh, is, a, is a good opportunity to read as well. Awesome, Bjorn. Thanks so much for everything you do. And thanks for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Bjorn Lomborg for joining me. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the bonus power hour. Uh, we've had a lot of energy humanist guests lately. We had Richard Toll and then Michael Schellenberger and Bjorn Lomborg. And in that general school, maybe not quite as focused on the philosophy of things, but uh, next week I have Michael Lynch, who has a really interesting new report out about how some of these fossil fuel uh, development elimination efforts in the freer parts of the world are very much playing to the advantage of the Middle East. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him uh, about that. You know, one, one theme of my discussion with Bjorn is that this, what I call energy humanist approach, it's getting more popular, but it's still largely absent from the mainstream. And what I would just encourage people to do is any energy humanist uh, thinker arguments you think are good, just keep sharing them because at some point, we're going to become unavoidable. You're even seeing critical coverage of Bjorn in different kinds of places. I think he got critical coverage in the New York Times. Uh, you know, you see all sorts of, um, you know, people trying to attack Michael Schellenberger. Uh, I've been going after in a few outlets and that's good. I mean, we wanna see, of course, it'd be great if they just agree with us, but we wanna see that attention. And at a certain point, it becomes unavoidable. You look at somebody like Jordan Peterson, a different field, you know, he got huge attention from everyone at a certain point because the following was just so big or even maybe more extreme. Joe Rogan, everyone knows about Joe Rogan. The mainstream media covers him, his approaches uh, because he's so well known. So you have a lot of power to share stuff and I encourage you to, to do this. And just as an indication of how this has helped already, so this week I was on Tucker Carlson for the first time. So that's one of the biggest uh, cable shows out there. It was only on for two minutes, 15 seconds or so. You can see it on youtube.com slash improve the planet. I have the clip uh, from the show, but you know, I think it's in, he, he promoted Fossil Future, which was cool. So I think one of the first shows that uh, promoted Fossil Future. And you know, that's, that's been really cool. Also, I've been doing a lot of uh, GB News, so this very popular channel in the UK who has invited me on a bunch of times. And I have a particular interview that kind of ended up being a debate with the host that went about nine minutes last week. And that's been incredibly popular. So if you go to youtube.com slash improve the planet, you can see that as, as you know, if you, if you see this relatively soon, it'll be one of the first uh, several videos. But you can just search Alex Epstein uh, GB News on YouTube, and I'm sure it'll come up. It's called something like Alex Epstein Eviscerates COP26. And I, I've been posting it on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I hope these numbers go up, but it's almost at 100,000 total views across platforms. And I think if it gets to a million, a million you know, plus, it's really going to have a big impact because people are having an amazing reaction to it in terms of finding it eye-opening, finding it useful. So that's one thing whenever you're hearing this. 
if I mean, leaving it, if it's five years later, then you know maybe there's something better to share. But try sharing that because I think that can be really, really uh, effective. Speaking of resources to share, uh, make sure to subscribe to my Energy Talking Points mailing list on Substack. You just need to go to alexepstein.substack.com and you'll get new, very well-referenced, powerful Energy Talking Points every week. Also, and to learn about any issue, just go to energytalkingpoints.com and you'll see that you can just type in any issue and learn about it. All right. One announcement that is a little bit sad uh, is that, so my book has been delayed so many times. Uh, well, the good thing is it is done. So I am literally not allowed to make any more changes to it uh, with the exception of I get to look at whether they implemented my changes and I get to proof that, uh, but I'm not allowed to make changes. So it's done and I'm really happy with it. Uh, it's you know it's definitely the best thing I've ever done. Um, but it was supposed to come out February 22nd, and now it is delayed till, till April 19th, which is Earth Week. So at least it's it's a good symbolic week there. There should be a lot of uh, news around it. I really did not want this to happen uh, without going into behind the scenes stuff. I tried my best to move heaven and earth to get it earlier, and I'm pretty good at getting stuff done. So I was not able to, in this case, basically it would have involved uh, it would have involved potentially catastrophic risks to the book in terms of like very important parts of the book not being able to, not being in the book or just like total disaster delays and failures, which have been happening throughout the publishing industry. So the backdrop here is just there's this what they call the global supply chain crisis, but in particular, the publishing industry is in a really bad state. And even though I've you know, Penguin, maybe the biggest publisher in the world, like they've had a bunch of failures to deliver things. Um, and so this was the data I was assured, okay, this, this, you can get everything out and you'll get enough books. And that's really important, uh, which goes to my next point, which is please pre-order the book sooner rather than later. There are many reasons to do this, but one is I want to make sure they get they print enough of them. So the more we can pre-order, get pre-ordered, the, the bigger the printing will be, the more available it'll be. Uh, in the future, and I'll start sharing different elements of it so you get a sense of it. Uh, but so right now, I'll just tell you, it is, it, it's very valuable. It's definitely worth your money. I'll give you a preview. I've gotten a bunch of blurbs from people. I'm going to probably get more, but so far I have blurbs from Michael Schellenberger, Dennis Prager, Matt Ridley, Patrick Moore, you know, co-founder of Greenpeace, uh, Safedine Amos, the economist and Bitcoin expert, Euron Brook, uh, chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute, my former boss, uh, several Congress people, including Representative Chip Roy, Representative August Pfluger, and I'm probably forgetting uh, some others as well, and there are a few more uh, in the pipeline. So yeah, it's it's going to be a really great release. It's really, you know, it's it's sad that it's not two, 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 like it was going to be before, but it's going to be out on Earth Week, and let's let's try to change the world with it. All right, with that, let's wrap up. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, to support the research and development and promotional efforts of the Center for Industrial Progress, become an accelerator or become an accelerator again at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And look forward to the next Power Hour. Uh, final reminder, 
look up that video that I've been sharing on YouTube, my Alex Epstein eviscerates COP26, or if you go on my Twitter, it's being shared there widely as well. Share that one in particular, it's making a lot of impact and let's, let's make sure over a million people see that video. All right, that's it for this week. I'll be back next week with Michael Lynch. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.